The following is a production of the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network here at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, be sure to visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. This is Serious Serious Fun. Hello and welcome to the 50th episode of Serious Fun. As always, I am your host and creator of Serious Fun, Dr. Brian Carr. 50 episodes, an incredible achievement because we like to determine success and longevity in like powers of five. Look, the important thing is this. We made 50 episodes and if you don't look too hard at how long the show's been around, that's a pretty good amount of episodes. Um, and I'm really, really excited for this particular episode to be the 50th episode. It works out really nice. It's not a big, splashy, sort of self-indulgent anniversary show. We're going to talk about monsters, Dracula, and Frankenstein, and the like. This is the third of our live podcast episodes from the 2022 Brown County Library PopCon, and uh, this is a special one. I brought in my pals Dr. Zach Cruz from UW Green Bay Sheboygan. And my other pal, Miriam Brabham, from our multi-ethnic student affairs office on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay to talk about monsters, our favorite ghosts and ghouls and various creeps. Uh, and we also had people vote on it. So we got to kind of actually have a discussion about who the greatest monster of all time is. And no cheating and saying it's man. That's hacky. It's played out. Anyway, this is a great episode. I think you'll enjoy it. Let's not waste any more time. Here is the King of the Monsters debate on Serious Fun. Hello, everyone, boils and ghouls. Welcome to another episode of Serious Fun on the Phoenix Studios Podcast Network. Coming to you live or undead. Once again, from the 2022 Brown County Library PopCon. I am once again your host and mysterious Lord of the Manor, Dr. Brian Carr. And folks, it's October 1st, officially the start of spooky season. And we thought, what better way to kick things off than by definitively, irrevocably, and without question answering one simple question, who is the greatest, gnarliest, scariest, most culturally significant monster of them all? Here to answer that question, I have two esteemed colleagues from our beloved institution of higher learning, University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, both the Green Bay campus and the Sheboygan campus represented today. These folks are horror experts, monster, monster aficionados, and also, importantly, were nice enough to humor me. First, all the way from UW-Green Bay Sheboygan, humanities professor and Eisner-nominated author of Mysterious Traveler, Steve Ditko in the search for a new liberal identity, and the guy who helped come up with this idea, let's give it up for Zach Cruz. Hello. Welcome, Zach. This is your first time in Serious Fun. Oh, man, I couldn't be happier to be yeah, here. Yeah, not the last, but certainly the first. Also joining us, another new face on Serious Fun uh, from the UW-Green Bay, Green Bay campus, right here in Green Bay, Wisconsin. <laughs> in her day job, she's part of the Multi-Ethnic Student Affairs Office, where she is a multicultural student success manager. But today, she comes to us as a horror aficionado and raconteur, a good friend of mine, Miriam Brabham. Hello. So folks, here's how this is going to go today. Uh, there is no shortage of incredible monsters, ghouls, and creeps across pop culture. For the sake of simplicity, 
We've narrowed it down to creatures that have the most significant presence against multi across multiple media. We've identified four of the great monsters of stage, screen, and page. For each one, we're going to give a tale of the tape, make a case for or against each. And at the end, you all get to vote for your favorite or maybe even politely inform us of a particularly heinous oversight. So with all that said, let's start this monster mash. <laughs> Woohoo! First up, Dracula, the terror of Transylvania. Old Vlad Tepish, a man you should absolutely not trust to be your physician because Dr. Acula, okay. Mm -hmm. Originating in Bram Stoker's titular epistolary novel, that's a novel where the story is told through letters written by the characters. See, you learned something coming to this and you didn't think you were, but I got you. I got you. Old Drac has been haunting our imaginations and spawning endless riffs and derivatives since 1897. Appears to have been inspired by the 15th century Wallachian prince and Romanian national hero Vlad the Impaler, Impaler or Vlad, Vlad Dracula. He has been villain, hero, and even doting father, depending on the context. Powers-wise, we're looking at mind control, blood draining, the ability to turn into a mist and a bat. Bat! <laughs> Thank you for the three people who got that. <laughs> and ultimately, to look really good in black and just about everything. Whether he's the sexy, dangerous antagonist of the Francis Ford Coppola adaptation, the goofy Adam Sandler riff from Hotel Transylvania, the recurring final boss and antagonist of Castlevania, or showing up in this one Superman comic where he bites Superman and his face like explodes because of the solar energy in Superman's uh, cells. Comics are great. There's no question that Dracula's a favorite that will never die because he can't. That's kind of his thing, unless a stake is involved. But, like, it, wouldn't anybody die if you just drew a, drove a wooden stake in your heart? Like, that feels like a lot of suspected vampires are probably killed needlessly, <laughs> right? Anyway, panel, how do we feel about Drac? Uh, I don't know if anybody wants to go first. I didn't think that far ahead. You want to start, Zach? Uh, sure, I love Dracula. Uh, first of all, all vampires are Draculas. Sure. No, there are no vampires. There are simply Draculas. Yeah. Uh, they were playing the by Venture Brothers rules, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, those, those are exactly the rules that yeah. I play by. Those are the only rules that count and matter. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, there are a variety of ways to think about this. And uh, obviously, Gene Colan drew the best Dracula, mm -hmm. right? Uh, everyone knows that. Of course, that's, that's Tomb of Dracula. Up yeah, there, right? for, yeah, for Tomb of Dracula, Gene mm -hmm. Colan drew the best Draculas because he would paint with a pencil and so on and so forth. But I think the best Dracula is Nosferatu, right? The Murnau movie, that's incredible. Uh, and it radically changes the way that people think about Dracula. It's not just uh, an invasion monster. It's not just a monster of sexual violence. Uh, it is a monster that is related to sort of the horrors and uh, degradations and traumas of the First World War and all of these things. So I love, I love thinking about those sort of vampire narratives outside of just the sort of epistolary novel that, right. uh, that Stoker lays out. Right, we certainly have seen a lot of instances where uh, vampires have, uh, you know, taken off in kind of significant ways in culture. Um, you know, Dracula is kind of the classic example of that. Um, but we have other, you know, we have everything from, you know, the Lost Boys. We have Twilight. We have any Twilight fans out there? We got Team Edward or Team Jacob. Where are we at? Team Edward. Okay. Mm. Really? Neither. <laughs> Captain Mopey Pants. We're, we're all about Edward over here? Okay. Um, fine. That's fine. I don't know. I just, just Jacob seems like a good guy. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, why do you think that we see vampires so often? Uh, to me yeah. or to Miriam? Uh, uh, we'll so start with you, Zach, and we'll, Miriam okay. will get your thoughts on this too. All right. So, I mean, I think I mean, a lot of the reason that we see is because Dracula is uh, this sort of classic invasion narrative, but there's also sort of an STD you know, component to this that I think a lot of people really relate to. I mean, Charles Burns talks about this. I mean, this is persistent throughout horror in mm -hmm. general, right? This concern about 
interactions with people, specifically sexual interactions with people, and the dangers that that imposes. I mean, he's an inherently conservative monster, mm -hmm. right, in, in that way. Um, so, I, so I think that, that there's something that sort of persists about that. But there's also this sort of uh, element to him that is also, I mean, even though there's this danger thing that's happening, he's also very sexy, mm -hmm. right? I mean, because he creeps into your room at night and like he, maybe he's a wolf or maybe he's a bat or maybe he's this thing that's just going to, you know, delicately bite into your neck and you're going to wake up the next day and you're going, oh, what happened to me? Right? I mean, there's something... There is something that is sort of um, like a dangerous element. Yeah, to yeah, him. There's, yeah. There's a there's a dangerous element to that that is appealing in fictional narratives, regardless sure. of you know whatever the politics of that are. Um, so something about that is is inherently exciting for folks. I mean, I think that you see that especially in the Bram Stoker version of the film or of uh, Bram Stoker adaptation of the film, but also things like Interview with a Vampire and so on and so forth. Right? There's a lot of different ways to take that. Uh, and I think especially something like Interview with a Vampire, you know, um, really gets people to sort of engage with queer narratives in, the way, in a mm -hmm. way that they wouldn't probably ordinarily do. Um, so, you know, there's a variety of reasons that it's impactful, uh, you know, but aside from the, you know, the, the sexy stuff, I mean, there is the invasion narrative, too, that people are constantly concerned about from one to one degree or another. Perhaps it's it's the invasion of you know sort of the Eastern European other, which has all sort, which is fraught with all sorts of racial and ethnic implications. But also there is the the concern of the of an invasion of just from an outsider, mm -hmm. right? That comes into your community and buys up all the real estate and suddenly wants to be you know the commander, the the leader of your town that you don't really want. That is you know a an other. Yeah, and and that's the theme in the original Stoker novel, right? right. They spent a lot of time talking about real estate. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's a real estate plot. I mean, he's like Lex Luthor yeah. in a certain way. I mean, like most of his plots are real estate plots, yeah. right? So, um, you know, and the fact that he has to bring his own real estate with him, and that's the way that he survives and mm -hmm. persists, and they have to destroy his real estate in order to destroy him, um, I think is not insignificant in those stories. So there's, there's a lot that is um, persistent and appealing about him, uh, things that sort of frighten us for a variety of reasons, some of which are more uncomfortable than others. Miriam, what are your thoughts on, on Dracula or vampires more broadly? Uh, vampires more broadly, I would say, because I do not subscribe to the everybody is Dracula method. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I think that the diversity of it all is what's, what's, you know, what makes mm. the concept of a vampire so scary, is that there are so many different ways to explain how and why they are doing what they are doing. And I think that there's this shadow organization um, conspiracy theorist mm. explanation that attracts us mm. to vampires. I mean, when we look at vampires, in almost every adaptation, there's this kind of some people know about them, but some people do not. And mm. that there's this kind of secret society that lives in the underbelly of what we as normal people or regular people mm just live alongside of them in this unconscious world that is happening parallel to our own is kind of exciting and thrilling to think that literally somebody you're walking by could just be wearing a ring and that's how they're able to walk through the, the world as a, as a vampire, that they're able to you know, kind of steal blood from blood banks and they're able to just ethically exist as a vampire. I think that that's kind of thrilling and also scary in the fact that what if they didn't want to be ethical in that? Mm -hmm. What would a snap from someone like that look like and what would the ramifications of that be? 
but we as humans are always kind of drawn to danger. And so being able to kind of exist near something that is dangerous, that's why people try to own exotic pets and things like that. Right. So to live and operate near something that could take your life at any moment and or take your life as you know it, right? Maybe make you a vampire in this transition element as well is something that can be thrilling and appalling at the same time. And that's really interesting because you see elements of that in all the monsters we're talking about today, that sort of notion of the danger and the other. But vampires, you know, and building up what Zach said, there is that element where, you know, it's it's almost liberating. It's thrilling. I mean, think about the kind of obsession we have with, like, murder as a society and, and, and you know, real-life monsters and serial killers and that kind of thing. And, you know, Dracula and vampires kind of speak to some of those same ideas, right? And that metaphor of, you know, vampirism being both a function of consumption, right? You are draining others to live so that you may continue. So there's almost like an element of selfishness to it, but also as kind of like this way, you know, if you look at more kind of like an Anne Rice kind of approach, you know, you are sort of immortal. Like you are given this firsthand seat to see the world unfold around you and using that as almost like kind of a way to kind of contextualize history in some interesting ways. That can, you know, that's an aspect of the vampire that's also kind of interesting. It's just that immortal life is... You know, something like, is that something you actually want? Is that something that would, you know, like, I, I mean, I just, show of hands, somebody would love to live forever, just like walk the world forever and never yeah. die. No, no, thank not, you. Not a lot I'll of support for that, that in this room. But there are folks who are just like, yeah, I want to see where this goes, right? And vampires are kind of a way you can tell that story, but, you know, that also leads to one of the kind of recurring tropes you see a lot of vampires is, I'm tired of being undead. I'm tired of living or unliving or whatever we're talking about here. Um, so there's a lot of interesting aspects that go with vampires, with Dracula, that make him such a perfect character antagonist or even hero. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the the threat of capitalism, yeah. right? I mean, to drain another person. But do you really want this to go on forever? Is this what you all want? Is, mm-hmm. this, is this who you really are? Hmm, curious. Yeah. Right, exactly. Uh, any other thoughts, Miriam? I think that also, too, when looking at vampires, that any monsters, really, it kind of forces you to explore the human element of what makes us human because there is this animation to this person, right? They may not be human anymore, but they're able to walk, talk, have thoughts, feelings. So what actually makes a person human versus a monster when you have someone who is able to communicate like we do, have thoughts, feelings, all of that good stuff, what is the difference? Where is the line in their humanity and where do they then become a monster? Okay. Any other thoughts on Dracula and vampires before we move on? All right. All right, so second up, we're going to go from sophisticated landed gentry to reanimated man of the people, the modern Prometheus, Frankenstein's monster. Yes, that's right. Please don't shout or email me pedantic comments. I know Frankenstein was both the doctor and the real monster. I get it. I passed high school English. The brainchild of author Mary Shelley and first appearing in Shelley's 1818 novel, The Monster, hereto after referred as Frankenstein, he's not typing the monster over and over again, has been reanimated time and time again in the public consciousness, acting both as a heart-rending fable of regret, loss, and scientific amorality, and also for some reason under a different form as the star of a beloved 1960s sitcom. Explain to me something, folks, before we move on. This has been bugging me for years. How did a Frankenstein and a vampire have a werewolf as a kid? I, I'm beginning to think the Munsters isn't exactly scientifically accurate. Wait a minute. What? 
That's the real controversy here. Yeah, mm -hmm. we're teaching the controversy. We yep. are questioning the monsters. Yep. They've had it too good for too long. <laughs> um, that, that movie on Netflix is it's something. You should check it out if you like this stuff. It's, uh, it's something. I can't, I can't wait to see it because yeah. it seems like it's going to be a disaster. It, 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 it is and it isn't. Like, it's yeah. Rob Zombie being given a budget to just go to basically make a fan film. Can't and, wait. Yeah, and there's good in that and there's bad in that, but I'll tell you, I don't regret watching it. I, as I usually don't with his stuff. But mm -hmm. anyway, Frank, or the creature, I guess, if we must, we want to follow Mary Shelley's rules. Uh, he's also appeared in comics, most notably as a heroic figure in DC's horror-themed tales. We see DC's Frankenstein up there with the sword and the gun. Video games, television, and film from the classic Boris Karloff interpretations. Bride of Frankenstein in particular is great. Two more questionable modern takes, like Aaron Eckhart, who played him as a superhero in I, Frankenstein. Somehow that movie was bad. I don't know how. Aaron Eckhart, Frankenstein, superhero, didn't work. Anyway, Frank's hard to kill, has crazy strength, all the better for throwing small children into ponds, and a misunderstood noble heart that doesn't seem to be too fond of fire. Where are we putting old Boltneck on our list panel? Start with Miriam. Oh, you guys seem really excited. I, are we okay with going to Zach first no. then? Yep, go ahead. No, 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 I want you to go. Okay. <laughs> he's, he's building up to something. All right, Miriam. I, I know, and that's making me nervous. I mean, he's... he's <laughs> um, for me, I, I think that with Frankenstein, it's, it's looking at, like you said more of so like him being created and this creation element of what makes him a monster and how he is interacting. Zach is over here like freaking out. I'm gonna, I'm gonna deter to Zach and then I can respond. <laughs> You're doing great. No, 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 there's no wrong answers here. We're all friends. These, these are, this is how this works, right? I don't want you to lose your passion. I'm not, no, that is impossible, my friend. You cannot, you cannot rob me of my passion for for the creature. I want to once again say that Zach really kind of inspired and kind of came up with the, the main idea for this, so. <laughs> you know, so, so kneel before me, and, you know, <laughs> throw, you know, send me your firstborn and that sort of thing. Uh, Frankenstein, the creature, is my absolute favorite for a variety of reasons. Mary Shelley's, Mary Shelley's novel, okay, great. It's fascinating. It's really, you know, a sort of Red Letter Day in science in the history of science fiction. Many people think it's the first science fiction novel. Okay, fine, 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 fine. Got it. But the film versions, the universal film versions, produced or directed by James Whale, uh, particularly Frankenstein in the sequel, uh, Bride of Frankenstein, are incredible films. Not only was James Whale a veteran of World War One and the trenches and trench warfare and the and the horrors and the monstrosities that people experienced. Uh, in the First World War. Whale was also gay. So uh, Whale's sensibilities as a queer person, as a queer veteran of the First World War, all of those things come through really strongly in Frankenstein, right? Like there are those moments where Frankenstein is lurching across what is more or less the no man's land that Whale saw in France and in Belgium during the First World War where there's those moments with the dark, shadowy, and creepy trees that Frankenstein is sort of escaping from the villagers and so on and so forth. I mean, those are, I mean, that is part and parcel of Whale's experience. But then, in Bride of Frankenstein, which is, anyone who tells me or wants to tell me that Bride of Frankenstein, that whatever, anyone who wants to inform me of what they think the greatest monster film of all time is, if they say anything other than Bride of Frankenstein, they are in fact wrong, <laughs> right? There's no way to get around this, right? Because the Bride of Frankenstein not only combines the horrors and the monstrosities and the traumas of global war that Whale, as well as uh, Ernst Thesinger, who is Dr. Pretorius in Bride of Frankenstein, both saw firsthand. 
Um, Whale and Thessinger were both outwardly queer people. And uh, their experiences combined, uh, their experiences as queer people and their experiences as veterans of the war sort of come together in this beautiful synthesis in Bride of Frankenstein that give us this really bleak picture of the world as it exists for those people in that moment of that generation in that time. And it is dark and it is fascinating and it is incredible. And if you allow yourself to be immersed in it for just a moment, like even the strange things, like the scenes like in uh, Bride of Frankenstein where uh, Dr. Pretorius is showing like all of his other like homunculi and so on and so forth. I mean, there is a weird tension in there where these people who have been rejected by the world and literally tried to, you know, were literally almost murdered by the world, like tried to create a new version of themselves for the world to experience. I mean, there's something really fascinating about that. And then by the time you get to the end and you have the, and you have the creature, you have Frankenstein, and he cannot connect with this other creature who was manufactured for him, right, that they scream at one another, and that Frankenstein, the, the creature must determine that the, everyone must die, that we belong dead, right? Like when he says that and pulls the switch and destroys Dr. Pretorius and himself and the bride, and when he destroys all of those things, the monsters and the monstrosities of the past and the horrors of World War I and the horrors of, frankly, himself as a queer and unusual being that is trying to exist in this place that no longer wants him or accepts him and didn't want him to begin with. That is not only bleak, but an incredible and revelatory moment for people going to the cinema, right, where they suddenly see themselves in unusual ways, regardless of their orientations, or their ethnicity, or their race, or whatever, if you saw yourself as an outsider at all, you suddenly were butted up against a world that hated you and no longer wanted you and tried to actively destroy you. And that the, that the monster chooses to destroy himself and his compatriots and tells the white doctor to run away and to live. He says, go, live, you live, right? And he says those things, right? Karloff says that, or his character says that. Like, that is bleak. That is really bleak and demands that you as the audience question yourself and your positionality and all of these things that you think you understand about the world in ways that you probably haven't had to deal with prior, right? And then after that, you get explicitly queer movies like Dracula's Daughter, which is 100% a lesbian Dracula movie, right? And, and on and on and on, you're suddenly in this position where you have to sort of reckon with yourself, right? Not just reckon with yourself as an individual, but reckon with yourself in comparison to the world that, in, in comparison to the, a world that, you know, simultaneously created you and does not want you. That is the monster kid sort of, you know, idea, right? Like all of us who are here are thinking about these things and read comics and watch monster movies. I mean, we've all felt that at some point. I mean, maybe not because of our ethnicity, maybe not because of our race, but certainly because of our personal sense of identity, right? I mean, Frankenstein is us. Right? So, so when you see these movies, right, and you see, you know, these interpretations of, of the creature, I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing thing. It's a really beautiful thing to experience and sort of see yourself in another like that. And moreover, when you see yourself in another like that, but not just see yourself in another like that, like through the Karloff version, but through the variety of takes, right? The Bernie Wrightson version of Frankenstein is amazing. It's one of the greatest comics adaptations of anything anywhere in the world. If you disagree, again, you're wrong, right? <laughs> Similarly. Uh, the um, the Dick Briefer versions of Frankenstein, where he is at first the murderous monster traversing the Eastern European countryside, destroying people. That's frightening, but Briefer 
quickly realizes that children are reading this and says, oh my gosh, I need to rethink Frankenstein, who Frankenstein is, and better relate to my audience. And then Frankenstein becomes this sort of friendly, sort of, you know, Mickey Mouse type, you know, friend for readers, right? Briefer's child version of Frankenstein is also really impactful too. It's not, it's not that Frankenstein has significantly changed. He's still a monster assembled from corpses, right? I mean, there's still something World War I-y about that. But the fact of the matter is, is that Frankenstein in that moment stands in for you, the outsider, who feels weird, even a little weird, all right? Or wants to talk about Frankenstein and the Wolfman and Dracula with your friends but can't, right? Like, that's, that's you. You are on that page and it, to some degree or to one degree or another. So, um, so, yeah, so I get really passionate about Frankenstein um, because he is, he is us, right? Uh, and when he kills that little girl in the pond, he doesn't mean to. He, he, he has a child brain, right? And he's not destroying a little girl. He's not killing a child in the literal, I mean, he is literally. But metaphorically, he is destroying the outsider who would see him dead, right? Um, and he, because he can't handle who he is. That's, that's tough, right? So there's something very therapeutic about the character. Um, anyway, I can go on, but I should stop. I, I like young Frankenstein. Yes. Oh man, put it on the put it on the Ritz, right? Yeah. Uh, Miriam, any other thoughts? Um, note to self: always let Zach go first. Um, so that that's the moral of my story and the lesson that I've learned here today. Um, but for me, I think again, I just echo everything that Zach is saying. I think that the the whole concept of being sewn together and trying to create life out of death is horrific and. That then again comes in the question of where is the humanity? What is the humanity of us? And can there be this question of humanity brought in in death? And these dead things that are put together and yet create something that is living, it, it is us, right? That right. is us as humans. We are tissue that are formed together and once was nothing and is something and then will be dead is humanity in and of itself and the question of morality or having this childlike brain and something that would destroy me or should we all be dead again the, these are human questions of what do we offer the world and what is the world offering us and is it an exchange that we're willing to accept yeah and there, there's an element of postmodernity in there too right like we are not a singular thing like you are not just you. Like you didn't just wake up one day and go, I'm me, right? Like no, you are, you are an amalgamation of other things, right? We are all Frankenstein's creature insofar as we are all sewn together bits of different kinds of pop culture and I ideologies and religious backgrounds and ethnic backgrounds and racial backgrounds and regional backgrounds and all of these things that bring us together into who we are. There is no singularity. There is no single us, right? We are, we are an amalgamation of I ideologies. Right, Frankenstein is exactly that thing, an, amalgam an amalgamation of literal people and metaphorically an amalgamation of ideologies that come together and suddenly must become this one thing, that must become this one functioning body. And that one functioning body, once it is forced into the world, does not know what in, the, what in God's name to do with itself. It must find a way forward. Even though it is hated, even though it is rejected, it must find a way forward, it must find friends. And where does it find friends? It finds friends in the queer and the disabled. Okay. Right? 
I think right. also too, just the intersectionality. Right? Exactly. Like you say, you don't wake up and become one thing. You are all these things that are sewn together, and some of those things may be repulsed by each other. Yep. You may have a religion that doesn't accept your orientation, and the fact that you are not, you did not ask to be created. You did not ask to be born. You did not ask to be born into whatever situation you're born into. You can't choose your family. You wake up to this doctor that has created you. You wake up to a family that has brought you in, whether that's adopted or born or joined later in life, a chosen family, all of these things that create us and force us to accept and analyze the innermost parts of ourselves and then justify them not only to the world but to ourselves and how they work together is the agony of being alive. Bingo. All right. I got nothing. I knew we'd be friends. I got nothing to add after all that. So we're just going to go on to the next one. Um, third up, it's the only monster on this list you might be able to fend off with a rolled up newspaper. That's right, the Wolfman. Unlike the other monsters on our list so far, the Wolfman, as we know him primarily, originates from films, specifically Lon Chaney Jr.'s portrayal in the 1941 film The Wolfman. Though the werewolf or lycanthrope as a concept has been around for centuries, dating back to at least ancient Greece, the Wolfman, or werewolves in general, often act as a struggle or, the, or symbol or struggle between good, or, good and evil as in a human being, as well as our own animal urges and desires, or as Freud would say, also sometimes the Wolfman is just a Wolfman. We can see the Wolfman in references to him throughout media, including the Marvel characters Man-Wolf, I know. And Werewolf by Night. I learned today, or yet last night, or whenever I was doing the research for this, that Werewolf by Night's real name, and this is true, his real name is Jack Russell. I don't know what to do with that information, so I put it here. As well as video games like Altered Beast and Darkstalkers and Rift On and countless films, including the 2020 or 2010 remake of the original film with Benicio Del Toro and Anthony Hopkins, which was surprisingly good, especially if you like a final climactic battle that's just like two giant like carpets fighting each other. Um, the Wolfman brings heightened senses, speed, animalistic bloodlust, and of course the ability to keep his hair perfect while drinking a pina colada at Trader Vic's. <laughs> Thank you. I was, I was afraid nobody would get that. Panel, what's our take on that guy who's got a bit more, uh, more than a bit of that dog in him? You I don't know, go let's first. go first. No, no, I've learned my lesson. <laughs> oh. You're going first on the next one. All right, well, you have to. You, at some point, you have to go first, right? Yeah. Uh, so the Wolfman, I love the Wolfman. When I was a boy, when I was a boy, uh, the Wolfman was the first uh, movie monster that really sort of pulled me in because the Wolfman is adolescence, right? I get a certain degree. The Wolfman is adolescence. Um, sort of the weird and uncomfortable phase that you feel in the middle of the night, and you go, oh, I feel something about this other person. Oh my God, what do I do? Well, I should turn into a giant hairy monster, and that's exactly what happens to you, in the, you know, throughout puberty, is you turn into a giant hairy monster that you don't know what to do with. Um, it's really terrific. Um, the thing that I love the most about, and this is not intellectual at all. Sure, it doesn't uh, have to be. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I know it doesn't have to yeah. be, but I'm just, I'm alerting the audience that this is in no way intellectual. You will learn nothing. Yeah, you will learn nothing from this other than something that I think is very funny and I have thought is funny since I was a boy is that Lon Chaney Jr. is the Wolfman and he shows up in this Eastern European town because he is supposed to be the son of some dignitary or something like that, right? And he's in there to like regain his inheritance, but he's just an oaky, right? He's just a giant beefy oaky who probably drinks too many brandy old fashions and loves cheese curds. And he just shows up like, oh, hey, I guess I'm Wolfman now, I like dirt. Like it's a really, it's a really incredible sort of 
moment where this giant idiot American shows up in Eastern Europe and then becomes a monster that terrorizes the countryside. There's something about that. I don't know what that thing is, but there's something really hilarious and weird about that um, because Lon Chaney Jr. is who he is. Um, especially if you follow Lon Chaney Jr. throughout his later career, he often plays Okies with drinking problems. Um, that's just kind of his deal. So, so is that the Wolfman? I'm not sure. But, um, but later incarnations of him, especially with Teen Wolf and things like that, those are the things that really made me excited when I was a kid. And we used to do things like we would Teen Wolf on, on the golf fan and we would stand on top of it and try to surf away. Uh, really idiotically dangerous things. So I guess for as much as I want to intellectualize Frankenstein, I want to point out that the Wolfman made me behave like a moron, <laughs> right? And uh, really foolish, foolish actions. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, I did not have that reaction to Wolfman. <laughs> um, I, I think that when we look at his, what the later adaptations of what this is, again, like Brian said, this animalistic look at ourselves and what would we be if we were liberated from like morality or from you know human code that what is acceptable to do and what would what would it look like if you were freed from that and then also too like when you look at again different adaptations in terms of timing right this is something that only happens once a month or when you get super angry or something happens to you that way, what again is your responsibility in that? Like were you, you know, infected? Is this going back to that STD question? Did somebody do this to you? Were you born this way? Did you make yourself this way? And are you responsible for your actions? And how do you make that responsibility known if it's only happening once a month. I mean, really, we can just, you know, kind of write it off. It's only it's only ever once in a while that I go out and just rape and pillage. So um, I think that, again, it brings into question that line of humanity within monsters and within ourselves. Is this something that lives within us, or is this something that is unlocked in a different genetic code when you're infected with it? I think that's, that's a really interesting way to put it, honestly. So um, has anyone on the panel or in the audience seen the movie I Was a Teenage Werewolf? It has Michael Landon in it, right? It's like an early Michael Landon-like vehicle. Um, I mean, in that movie, that's one of like three werewolf movies from the 1950s, right? Which is, seems unusual, but there's only three werewolf movies from the 1950s. One of them is I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Um, so in that movie, Michael Landon goes and sees a psychiatrist because he's a troubled teen. And then uh, through the power of hypnosis, uh, the, the interiority of Michael Landon is unlocked. This, this renegade teen who can't handle themselves any longer, which speaks exactly to, to what you're talking about. Like, am I just having like a really bad day? Are these my hormones? Like, what's going on here? Um, so all of those things are sort of suddenly unlocked, and he terrorizes his small California town. And then there's a sequel that comes after it. Um, so there's something... There is something interesting about that. I mean, the werewolf seems to speak to those exact things that you're talking about, right? And there's another moment, speaking of werewolves from the 1950s, there's a movie called The Werewolf. It was produced by Sam Katzman, and um, I can't remember the director off the top of my head. But anyway, in that one, uh, a man becomes a werewolf because he is given a vaccine, a vaccine that is designed to uh, protect him against 
um, the inevitability of uh, nuclear holocaust, right? So it's a weird vaccine narrative. So like if you've been living in America for se since 2016, like you understand like things are strange. Um, but there is this sort of weird sort of proto-narrative about that in this film where there is this thing that is inside of you that is going to be unlocked by some external force. Perhaps it's puberty, perhaps it's your feelings or emotions or whatever, or perhaps there's a secret government cabal that is out there to get you and turn you all into werewolves and that will turn you, that will force you to destroy the country from the inside, ruining conservative values everywhere across the Midwest and Northern California. Okay, first off, how'd you know about the secret cabal? <laughs> I told you that in confidence. Uh, sorry, I, I, I wasn't supposed to say that, um, but uh, my, my CIA handler is here to pick me up in a minute and I need to get these things out right now. Um, but anyway, so I mean, I guess the larger point there is that like, to build on, to build on what Miriam's saying is that there is this sort of belief that the werewolf comes from someplace inside of you, right? It's not just an external force. You're not being assembled by some existential threat, like it, it's you, you are the wolf. There is some bestial thing inside of you. And I, I suppose that that's probably where a lot of these myths come from as it relates to skinwalkers and lycanthropy in general. There's right? a like, long cultural history of the idea yeah. of shape-shifting and turning into uh, an animalistic form and that kind of thing across multiple cultures. Sure, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, cool, so uh, in the interest of time, we're gonna move on to our final monster so we can give some time for the audience to have some feedback and we can have a proper vote. Um, and Miriam, I'm gonna have, you're gonna take the lead on this one because okay. I put this one in here ex pretty much expressly for you. Um, <laughs> let's talk about, uh, you know, we've been talking about a lot of named monsters, but uh, there's one kind of workhorse that we see a lot of, we haven't really talked about yet. Rounding out our monstrous menagerie, we're gonna go outside the universal monsters to honor the humble zombie. A creature that is as malleable, varied, and diverse as we are, because the zombie, in so many ways, is us. While zombies have been around for centuries, originating in Haitian folklore, the name is generally considered West African in origin, and introduced to the West in W.B. Seabrook's The Magic Island, this is all the greatest information Wikipedia can offer, zombies in our current cultural consciousness arguably stem largely from George A. Romero's 1968 film Night of the Living Dead, and its sequel, ten years later, Dawn of the Dead, both of which moved the concept away from its roots in magic and folklore and uh, toward portraying zombieism as a, an apocalyptic mass outbreak that ravages society and the zombie as your reanimated neighbor, friend, or enemy trying to eat you. Whether that reanimation happens by magic, the twisted scientific machinations of a heartless multinational corporation, where are my Resident Evil fans at? Yeah, right here. <laughs> or by the spread of a malevolent and contagious virus, the zombie has remained a shambling uh, has, has, has shambled across multiple media. I did not finish that sentence. Uh, from the comedic takes of Shaun of the Dead to the grim societal collapse of The Walking Dead, to the electronic mayhem of games like Dead Rising and Resident Evil, to teen romance, yeah, like warm bodies. That's where they lost me. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing against that one. I'm just like, that's a weird concept, but okay. And so on and so forth. I personally love that one Treehouse of Horror segment on The Simpsons. Is this the end of zombie Shakespeare? Zombie media is like the zombie horde itself. It's huge, it swarms, and it never quite stays dead. Now, zombies aren't quite as fancy as the other monsters we've got on the docket today, but they got the numbers, and they got the brains to go as far as they want. I'm sorry, misunderstanding on my part. They go far because they want the brains. Sorry. <laughs> so, panel, does the zombie deserve to claw and chew and clamber their way over the competition? Miriam, my friend, my zombie enthusiast, <laughs> what's your thoughts? Um, obviously, I'm going to say yes. I, I think that they do. Um, because we've ex and we've explored these different monsters in terms of what they bring society, societally, culturally, all of that good stuff in terms of their humanity and where's that line in monsters. 
But when we look at the zombie, there is none of that. They are stripped away from that, and they are literally just the primitive portion of whatever is left over from a body. And literally, they are walking and decaying at the same time. And in that concept of what is left over when you're no longer your soul or your being or your essence, your aura, whatever you prescribe to, is gone when, when what is left over is taking over and literally only has one mission. And whether that's, you know, going from different types of lore in terms of you could be cured from this, this is something that you could get a cure for, or this is something that you can move fast with or have super strength with, or you're going to be slow and shambling and falling apart, or you're some type of eco-friendly zombie that is, you know, growing into trees and so forth and replenishing the earth because that's your punishment for being an awful human while you were here. The, this question is literally stripped away all of the otherism, and it has left behind just the nasty essence of what humans have done to the planet. And I think that that makes them the ultimate monster because they are us in our gnarliest, most refined, most boiled down version. That's me. Yes. Uh, the zombie is the ghost of Banquo, right? Sitting in the corner mocking Macbeth, right? This is the thing. We have destroyed this. We have done this thing. We are now responsible for it. And it, it lurches after us and haunts us for all of eternity. Yeah, Once I, again, I zombie Shakespeare. Yeah, zombie Shakespeare, right? Um, this is not the end of zombie Shakespeare. <laughs> uh, I, I, I agree with you. And um, I, I agree with you 100% about those things, whether it's an ecological disaster or the, the horrors of war or the injustices, um, you know, uh, racial and ethnic injustices. I mean, George Romero in Night of the Living Dead, in all of his dead movies, they're always about racial and class consciousness. I mean, that is the deliberate thing. Like, I'm not someone who thinks that you should take authors seriously when they tell you what their stories are about, but Romero's pretty sincere. Like, this is a racial and class narrative that he, that he develops over the course of all of his films. I mean, that's exactly what it is. We can debate the degree to which that's successful, but that's what it is. Um, but even before Romero, uh, French films and films after World War I, like Je Accuse, are also zombie films, and they are about the very same thing, about the horrors of war and the nightmare of the dead coming back to life and returning home and saying, hey, you sent us off to fight in the trenches. Now what do you do? How do you, do you really care what we did? Do you really care about the sacrifices we made and were the sacrifices we made worth it? For anything, or does this mean nothing? Um, so, so those narratives are really persistent um, from the beginning of the 20th century horror film. Really, um, Jake Hughes is a great early zombie example, even though it's not explicitly a, a zombie film. I mean, Romero is certainly drawing upon um, that context. So, yeah, I mean, this, the zombie is that thing, right? It is the lurking and lurching terror that is behind <coughs> us always because of because of our misdeeds and misbehavior and mistreatment of one another and the planet. No, I, I completely 
agree with all of that. And I mean, even when you go back to, like Brian said, with, you know, where it originates from in terms of this being a curse that was placed on you or actual voodoo and reanimating actual living people that aren't dead, but they have been able to extract something or disconnect something in the brain where you're able to follow orders, but you're not able to communicate or have your own thoughts or feelings or all of those things, when you even look back to that in terms of, well, at what point then do you lose control of that quote unquote monster? At what point then does even that control that you've um, been able to gain in controlling that part of the brain lose that control because whatever poison you use to, you know, end that connection continues to seep throughout the brain and then that monster is again on their own and for their own primitive and primal needs. And when you look at that, why as humans would you even want to control something like that or create something like that, that there's always this, the roosters are coming home to roost type of situation. In almost any zombie adaptation that you look at, there is always a point where people try to control the zombies, try to use the horde as a weapon against other people, and almost always fall to their own weapon. And this concept of, well, is this then your punishment for what you have done and why you have done it, that you then die by the sword that you lived by? Yeah, I, I think that that's exactly right. I think that that's 100% right. And um, I was trying... I'm spacing out like I'm, I, I had a stroke in front of all of you. Um, but uh, there, there are a number of movies that are explicitly about that very thing, right? So Jacques Tournier, the director who, um, who's the director of Out of the Past, uh, he's also a director of a film called um, I Walked with a Zombie that was produced by Val Luton. That's the name that I was stroking out on, Val Luton. Anyway, so Val Luton and Jacques Tournier worked together any number of times, but in a movie like I Walked with a Zombie, that's explicitly about that thing, right? Like. It's about the horrors of the slave trade. In the, it, I mean, it's really about the horrors of the slave trade in the Americas, but they centralized their focus in the Caribbean. Um, but this, uh, can I swear? Uh, family event, uh, event says it, it's, Andrea. It's, a, it's an F around and find out go. situation, let's say. There you go. Um, let's put it that way. It's an F around and find out situation in and I walked with a zombie as it relates to the nightmares and the injustices and the, and the violence involved with, with, the, uh, with the slave trade from, from Africa into the Caribbean and, and, and into the Americas, right? It is this thing that you must now deal with, but you cannot escape because it is lurking behind you forever and ever and ever. Mm -hmm. And um, you can't destroy it and you shouldn't try to destroy it. You can only confront it and try to embrace it and um, be honest with who you are and what you've done. Yeah. So I, I think zombie narratives are by and large like that. And I think that you really see that. I mean, to go back to Brian's example about um, Night of the Living Dead, right, in Romero. I mean, the hero of the film, Ben, I mean, he's murdered at the end. That's not a spoiler. If you, this, it's almost a 60-year-old film. I'm not spoiling it for you. You're fine, right? But that he dies at the end is, is a reckoning for the audience, right? It's not that Ben was right or that Ben was wrong, but that Ben was a victim of this not for any reason other than the fact that he existed in that moment, in that place, right? I mean, that is, the, that is the reckoning of the zombie. That is the reckoning of the film. I mean, that is the political injustice that zombies sort of demand that you face in your day-to-day in your -day existence. So they become a really powerful narrative tool um, in a variety of contexts. So. 
cool. Yeah, and to echo that, I think that like when you're looking at film or um, TV shows, even like The Walking Dead, um, Fear of the Walking Dead, all of these types of spinoffs that you're looking at, they are looking at the greater societal context outside of just the one zombie that is happening or this person turning. They look at what then is the ramification of living in a world where people are also dead. And how do you create and craft society? How do you create community when you can't trust your fellow man and you can't trust those that are dead? So how do you utilize what you have left as humans to then survive? And what are you willing to do to survive in this post-apocalyptic world? And what does that say about your humanity? Even though you are not a zombie, are you then the monster? And the zombie is liberated from this morality in terms of you can explain away what they're actually doing because that is what they are supposed to do as a zombie but you as a human are still chained to this morality and you are ones that we're looking at and saying well no you shouldn't have done this or this was a misstep or this cost this person their life or this cost this community their home because of the choices that you made whereas a zombie you are liberated from that and in all monster situations there's this almost liberation from that because you have to explain away what they are doing as monsters in the fact that they are monsters whereas really is a real monster in humanity Okay, so you've heard some very passionate cases being made on behalf of our four monsters, which are, again, Dracula, the Wolfman, Frankenstein's monster, and the zombie. Does anybody in the audience want to come up and make a case for one of these creatures? We've got a microphone right here. Ooh, don't all jump at don't once. Don't all jump at once. Okay, we have a, we have a volunteer. Please come up and uh, tell us your name and... Uh, which monster you wish to, the monster for which you wish to advocate. Uh, my name's Nicole. Uh, I'm gonna go with Frankenstein's monster. Um, I re like, it's very interesting. There's similar topics and conversations between Frankenstein's monster and zombies. Mm -hmm. It's a very similar case, but to me, especially how, uh, you know, the last couple of years have been, um, to me, the, the idea with Frankenstein's monster being created from everything else, we, we've seen really some of the ugly side of people the last couple of years. And to me, I look around and I see more of the Frankenstein versus the zombies. Because to me, the zombies, once they get to that point of zombies, there's like, yeah, they're being controlled and everything. But Frankenstein's monster was created, like you have mentioned. They didn't ask to be born. They were created into this life. Zombies had their life. And then got forced into it. Whereas to me, Frankenstein had no choice, became this monster, and just unfortunately had to do that, but still tried. You've seen so many episodes, like different media stuff. Frankenstein tries to be quote unquote normal, tries to actually have more of a human element. But overall, he's still that monster that I don't think any of us ever want to be, but there's times we all think we are. Thank you very much, Nicole. Anybody else want to share their... Yeah, there we go. Yes, please. Round of applause. Come on up. Ian, tell us who you are and for whom you wish to advocate. I am Jamie, and I'm going to advocate for the zombies. Zombies. Jamie, Yay. why zombies? Um, I think I'm going to advocate for the patient, a little niche, um, patient zero zombie where 
you you think that you're going to be that top dog and you're going to come out and you're not going to be the full zombie, um, but you also have the urge to kill people twice, mm. um, which is kind of nice for certain people. Um, but then again, it ties into the Frankenstein. It's like, did you have the choice? Did you not have the choice? Um, I think it's just a reflection of society where you think you're going to come out as top dog and you're not going to be converted into a zombie and everyone has that little bit of narcissism in them that thinks they're going to be, you know, coming out on top and killing zombies and not actually being a zombie. So I don't know. It just kind of ties into how important do we think we are in society. And, yeah, I guess that's about it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yes, again, a round of applause. Uh, we have time, I think, for one or two more if anybody else wants to come up and make their case. Yes, please, come on up. And state your name and the creature that you want to stand up for. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm Michael. Um, I'm the Team Edward person. Okay. So All obviously right. Dracula. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I just, I really love Dracula. I've read the book like three times, um, written like so many papers on it. I was an English major, so there wasn't, there's not a lot of books to write about, so it had to be Dracula. But, um, I just think what's really interesting about Dracula and vampires in general is story-wise, they can kind of stand for anything. So you kind of mentioned capitalism, queer narratives. Um, so I just think that's really, that's why vampires are used so much in a lot of stories and literature and media is because they can kind of be anything and a metaphor for anything. And also, they're they're pretty scary because they can kind of be anyone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, werewolves, you know, might look normal most of the time, but when you see a werewolf, you know it's a werewolf. Mm -hmm. Or Frankenstein's monsters, zombies, you know what you're seeing. But vampires, you don't really know it's a vampire until it's too late. So. All right. Good to know. Thank you. <laughs> I think we got one more if anybody else wants to come up, or we can just get straight to voting. It sounds like I'm getting kind of a, we want to get this, this over with vibe. All right. So uh, here's how this is going to go down. Um, we're going to use uh, the time for talking is over. The time for voting has begun. Uh, we're going to use the time-tested democratic method of applause. Um, Zach, you had like this really nice like printed out thing we were going to do, and I didn't have any, I, I didn't do it. He didn't respond to my email. I, I didn't respond to his email. I do apologize for that. Um, now. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, uh, and, and Andrea, would you be willing to be our tiebreaker here? Okay. So Andrea's going to be kind of our deliberator here. So I'm going to read off the names again. Uh, just as a reminder, we got Dracula. We got Frankenstein's monster. We got the Wolfman. And we got Zombie. Okay. So, and you can, you can clap and cheer for more than one, but it's like how loud we're going to get. Okay. All right. Dracula. Okay, okay. Frankenstein. Okay, so Dracula just got completely bodied there. Uh, <laughs> Not bodied. How about the Wolfman? Those like two guys, but they're real enthusiastic. You got to give it to them. And finally, the zombie. Okay, so what do we... Uh, Andrea, I think we've got two contenders for the front runners. 
Okay, so we're going to do this again. So it's, it's just down to Frankenstein and the zombie. And so you got to pick one now. Okay. You know what the right answer you, is. Okay. You, can't, you cannot lean on... Yes, you do. You <laughs> Follow your heart and your brain. You know, I just want to say it was very hard exactly. not to put, like, the creature from the Black Lagoon in here. Oh, man. Because I was, I was really trying to think, like, you know, okay, we've had, like, werewolf romances. We've had vampire romances. We've had zombie romances. And then for a long time, we didn't have Creature from the Black Lagoon romances, but then Guillermo del Toro had to ruin that. Yeah. Um, the best monster in the worst movies. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So we are down to two. It's Frankenstein the zombie. So Frankenstein. <laughs> zombie. Zombie. Ooh, we had a chant. Yeah. I just want to say that is a game changer. Yeah, that's... That's like Andrea, your final, your final judge on this. Frankenstein by volume, but we got to give it to zombies. They put their, they, they put their heads into it. They really uh, went for it. Um, but uh, no matter what, you can't go wrong with any of these monsters. They, are, they endure for a reason, and uh, that's why we love them. So congratulations to Frankenstein, the painstaking, scientifically and democratically proved king of the monsters. Just don't tell the other king of the monsters, the big guy. You know, breathes atomic fire. He's the jealous type. Okay. <laughs> Folks, that'll do it for this episode of Serious Fun. Don't forget to check out all the other Phoenix Studios shows at uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts. And please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Serious Fun and our other shows on your podcast platform of choice. Special thanks to my co-host today, Dr. Zach Cruz and Miriam Brabham. Please give them a big round of applause. Show them some love. These folks came out and just killed it. I couldn't be happier with how that went. So thank you both. It's been an amazing day of live shows here at the... Uh, Brown County Library PopCons, our last show for the day. Once again, thank you so much to everybody at the Brown County Library, especially uh, Gillian and Andrea who's here and Claire and all the rest of the staff for all their help and fantastic work organizing this event. Folks, libraries are amazing. They're one of the last walls protecting truth, knowledge, and justice in our society. We'd be lost without them. So before you leave today, thank the librarians. Let's get a round of applause for them right now. Get loud. It's like the one time you get really loud in the library. So thank you to everybody who organized the PopCon. Thank you all for being a part of the show. Thanks again to Miriam and Zach. And folks, enjoy the rest of the PopCon. It's been lovely. Thank you all so much. You just listened to a Phoenix Studio production the podcast network for the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. For more podcasts, please visit uwgb.edu forward slash podcasts.